My name is Lauren Riesberg, and I'm the director of the UBC Biodiversity Research Center, and I'm also a professor in the Department of Botany in the Faculty of Science. And it's my pleasure to welcome, welcome you to tonight's uh, uh, presentation. I also want to thank you for carving out time from your busy schedules to join us tonight in Robson Square. I see a lot of familiar faces, um, including Megan Aronson, the Dean of the Faculty of Science. So before I invite our panel host, Sally Otto, to join us on the stage, I wanted to tell you a little bit about her, and she actually told me not to before this, so we're gonna make it a bit shorter than I originally planned in deference to Sally, but not very much shorter. Um, so Sally uh, got her bachelor's of science and PhD from Stanford University. She then went to with postdocs at Berkeley and University of Edinburgh before coming to UBC, where she's a professor in the Department of Zoology and the holder of the Canada Research Chair in Theoretical and Experimental Evolution. So Sally um, is the director of the Libero, of the Libo Euro postdoctoral fellowship program in conservation biology which supports early career scientists to conduct and communicate research on, con on conservation and management issues across Canada. And this is a Canada-wide uh, program. She also sits on the uh, Species at Risk Advisory uh, panel. Um, this is a federal panel that advises the federal government about issues uh, relating to uh, rare and endangered species in Canada. Uh, Sally also helped establish the Canadian Society of Ecology and Evolution, and before me she served as the director of the Biodiversity Research uh, uh, Center, and she is the one who I think really put it on the map. It's, uh, in some ways, it's terrible to follow Sally because I always feel inadequate. Um, and, uh, but it's wonderful also to follow her because we have so many more opportunities now, and she's raised the visibility of, of the BRC in, 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 at UBC in Canada um, and worldwide. She also um, has served as the president and vice president of the Society of Study for the Study of Evolution. That is the main evolution society worldwide, and that's sort of her uh, specialty. Um, she's a highly acclaimed scientist. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. She's a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. She's a MacArthur Fellow. That is the MacArthur Genius uh, Fellow, and she really is a genius. When I first came to UBC, I sometimes disagreed with Sally. That was a mistake. I was always wrong. Um, <laughs> so now what I do is when I have a disagreement with Sally, instead of disagreeing with her verbally, I think, okay, why am I wrong? And, uh, <laughs> It's easier that way. You don't sort of humiliate yourself. Um, so Sally describes herself as an investigative journalist of the natural world. She likes puzzles, and she's very good at teasing them apart. And so she's tackled some of the most challenging and difficult issues in evolutionary biology, the biggest puzzles, the biggest questions. One of these, um, I'm not going to go on this very longer, much longer, is about the evolution of sex. Why do we need to have separate sexes when, or why do we need sex at all when one uh, sort of sex would be enough? And so she actually solved that puzzle, I think. Some disagree, but I think it's, they'll learn soon enough <laughs> that they're wrong. Um, so Sally is a mathematician also, and so she uses mathematical models and theory to, to um, study how populations change over time. Her work has been really fundamental to understanding how the remarkable biodiversity we see on this planet, 
these millions of just spectacularly, spectacular species that we have, how these things originated and how they're maintained. And, and this also provides the framework, which is she's studying now, is to predict how these populations and species are gonna to respond to this very rapid environmental change that we're seeing because of human uh, um, activities and hopefully uh, provide strategies and the fact that we're working on them now to, to sort of help organisms adapt to these changes because if we, in some ways, if we could just get out of the way, they would do just fine, but in fact, there are too many of us and so we'll be hearing a lot about that tonight. And so, um, welcome Sally. It's my pleasure to welcome you and to talk with you tonight. And uh, I am going to be joined on stage by my two colleagues, Cole Burden and Jeanette Whitten. So I'm going to talk and give an overview of the biodiversity crisis uh, and what I and my colleagues have learned as scientists. And then we're going to switch at, um, after that overview to Cole talking about some of the innovative ways that we're trying to understand. They're telling me now innovative ways to study wildlife, particularly large mammals. And then Jeanette is going to talk about some of the mysteries that we uh, that remain within the plant community and how little uh, we know about plants at risk and how she and other research going on at UBC is trying to fill in that gap and try and understand um, uh, the status of plants in British Columbia. So that's going to be our panel. Uh, but before, we, before I start, I'd like to acknowledge that we are on the unceded lands of the Coast Salish, um, and I very much appreciate living and working on the lands of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. So I realize we're the panel, and we're supposed to be the ones that are providing the um, answers, and you're supposed to Please keep these questions in mind during the talk. We'll come back to them at the end. So here's your first question. On what percentage of land in British Columbia are endangered species legally protected? Question number one. Question number two. What law, if any, protects species at risk on federal crown land? What law, if any, protects species at risk on BC provincial crown land? And what law, if any, protects species at risk on private land? And I ask these questions in part because I think the vast majority of people do not know the answers to this. So I wanted to make sure, we wanted to make sure that if nothing else, you go home with these take home points. Okay, but as Lauren mentioned, I'm an evolutionary biologist. I use mathematics to understand the diversity of life. How from 4.1-ish billion years ago, um, when we all descended from the same common ancestor, a single cell, how did we, how did evolution lead to the dramatic diversity of life that we see on this planet? And I think this is one of the most interesting questions that uh, anybody can study, and I feel very privileged to do so. But 4.1 billion years, that's a lot of evolutionary time. But I want to put it in a different context and say, if you imagine all of the branches, if we summed up all of the branches leading to the five to 10 million species that live on this planet, and summed up all of those branch lengths across the whole tree, 
that's 10 to the 15, 10 to the 15 years of innovation that evolution represents, that biological diversity represents. 10 to the 15 is such a large number, I can't even really fathom it. But it's apparently about the same number of letters in the entire canon of literature that humans have written. So that's about the number of years of innovation that we have represented in the tree of life. And it matters because Evolution has led to solutions to environmental challenges that are just um, dramatic, from allowing organisms to live in acidic environments, highly um, the hot um, water temperatures around hydrothermal vents, all the way up to the Arctic under extremely cold temperature. There are organisms that freeze, and um, that's probably not the hard part, but then they come back to life, which is an amazing feat of evolution. In addition, uh, organisms have evolved to adapt to um, competition with other organisms, disease, predation. And so all of those challenges that life throws at us, evolution has over time solved. Mutations randomly arise, and those that allow the individuals to survive and propagate their genes to the future generations. Those are the solutions. And when I talk about evolutionary innovation, that's a that's what I'm talking about, the sum total innovations that evolution has led to today. So as Lauren mentioned, I'm particularly interested in why this diversity evolves, like why sex in some branches and not in other branches, why some are large and some are small. But today I wanted to focus less on my research to understand this kind of um, diversity that arises and talk more about uh, this, um, title of this talk, One Million Species, Reasons to Care. What does this refer to? There was an IPBES report in May, and some of you may have read about it, that estimated that one million species on this planet are currently at risk of extinction. IPBES, what is that? It's like the IPCC for climate, but it's for biodiversity, and it stands for the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. So I want to unpack for you a little bit where that number comes from and what it means and what the state of biodiversity is today. But before, and I want to do, talk about my concerns about biodiversity declines really with kind of two hats on. One is a scientist that I've talked about and the loss of that incredible diversity of evo uh, that evolution has led to. But I also want to uh, put another hat on, and which is probably the same reason that you all are here, and that is a real love of the natural world and wilderness and walking around and seeing um, rolling grasslands or the pine forests or the coastal Douglas fir forests around this area. It's these views, the, this, in, this interaction with nature and appreciation of nature. This is sagebrush forest with an aspen um, glen that uh, both holds and is home to a, a variety of insects and animal, um, mammals and birds and amphibians, um, but it's also what we tend to uh, build and transform through our human habitation. And that's what I want to talk a bit about. So these, so I think everyone here has this uh, kind of love of nature, inspiration, or awe when we go outside. So when, um, so that's the second hat I want to take to this, that we, a hat that we all share. You don't have to be an evolutionary expert to care about this number. So where does it come from? Uh, I just want to uh, point out that IPBES um, 
their summary statement was that nature is declining globally at rates unprecedented in human history, and the rate of species extinction is accelerating, with grave impacts on people around the world now likely. And they argue for transformative changes needed to restore and protect nature. So this, importantly, IPBES has 124 member countries, and these statements were summary statements that were approved by consensus of the entire board of IPBES. Where do these numbers come from? Well, they come from actually a huge stack of scientific work. They come from amassing all of the assessments that have been done by scientists in a wide group of organisms, from fishes to plants, where um, scientists have basically tracked and counted how are these species doing, doing, and they do it over and over and over again. So Jeanette will tell us about some of the work that she's done tracking uh, the fate of uh, plant species and how they're doing. So basically, for each of these groups, the IPBES um, experts said, this is what we've looked at so far. And of course, they haven't looked at all of the species. But of the ones that they've looked at, they assessed which ones were at risk of extinction. And those are in red for critically um, endangered, orange, endangered, yellow, vulnerable. So these colors are all the ones that are at risk. And then they multiplied up the, num the uh, fraction that are at risk of the species that they've looked at and multiplied up by the number of species that exist in that group and summed it up over all of these groups. And that's where they got to the million. There's a lot of species that we haven't looked at, a lot of species that we haven't studied at all. As a matter of fact, we don't even know the exact number of species on this planet. Um, but the best guesses are where that one million number comes from. And it, it, um, if you sum total it, it's about one in five species are at risk of extinction, if in either in vertebrates or in vertebrates or in plants. That's about one in five number there. There's a second way to look at it, and that is not how, uh, what fraction of species are at risk of extinction, but just how's the biological world doing? How many individuals are out there? And how does that compare to how many individuals were out there before? The most famous tracking of this is a meta-analysis done um, by the Zoological, Society, uh, the Zoological Society of London, as well as WWF. It's called the Living Planet Index. And they take 10,000 data series for 3,000 vertebrate species. It's the only vertebrates. And they count how many individuals uh, there have been over various periods of time. And sum it all up to estimate what's the total loss of individuals of these vertebrate species since 1970. And the um, sum total is a 58% decline. So that's over my lifespan. There's been a decline in the number of wildlife individuals of 58%. There's a recent uh, figure that you might have heard in the newspaper that said there's been a loss of 2.9 billion birds. This is a more specific number, but it's comparable. It's counting up the number of individuals lost today relative to 1970. And this number has to do with just in um, the United States and Canada. But I'll just give you a sneak peek at what the data was that went into this paper. They uh, tallied all of the breeding bird surveys that people do. I don't know, how many people have been involved in a 
bird survey. That's a good number, the Christmas bird survey or the um, annual, um, the North American breeding bird survey. So those compile data again and again and again. And so thank you to all of you who have been involved in such surveys. It's those surveys that went into this number. But interestingly, they had a second source of data too. And that's using radar. Just the kind of radar that's used to track airplanes. Well, it also can be used to track birds. It's a small object, it's not as large as a plane, but it's moving. And you can go to this live migration map anytime and actually find out. This is only an array of radar stations across the United States, but it shows you the density of birds in flight at any point in time that you go to see. So it's pretty cool. And similarly, they, they don't have that for as much back to the 1970, but they have 10 years of data on this now. And the rates of decline are about the same, about 1% annual decline, whether or not it's people looking for birds or radar counting birds. So that's where that 2.9 billion fewer birds comes from. What are the threats? Scientists have evaluated the causes of threats, and the big two are direct consumption. That's called um, exploitation here. It's in this dark blue. That's fish that we eat or trees that we cut down. The other, these two are separated here, but this is habitat loss and habitat degradation or change. And so the, the, those two really are the big one, uh, especially for terrestrial species. We're basically changing, uh, converting wild landscapes into farms and um, roads, but even places where you might not think, oh, this isn't that affected. It's just one road in this area. It still often affects movement of wildlife, as Cole will tell us about when he comes up to the panel. So one of the things that actually um, I'll point out, and this is from the global assessment on the left and on the right is an assessment within Canada, um, but the similar sorts of trends emerge. The red and the green for habitat change are really high up there. The dark blue is this um, exploitation by the actual use of those individuals. But I wanted to point out that what is not very high at this point is climate change. So far for species at risk, it's not a major player. It, can, it is often um, raised as a, as a future threat, but not a current threat. Um, but if we continue business as usual, we are going to see this number rise. So climate change is really uh, 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 this big specter that we don't actually know how many species are gonna survive over uh, the next 50 to 100 years of climate warms. This is, this is the kind of data that we're getting out from UBC scientists. So our colleague, um, uh, Tung Lee Wang and Sally Aiken and others have looked at trees in British Columbia and measured where trees are growing and where their best climate is. And then they measure how that's changing over time. How, as the climate warms, how fast is that best climate moving away from the trees? And trees, of course, can't move very fast. So what they've estimated is that climate is moving at a rate of about one kilometer per year. So it's a little, sometimes a little abstract to think of climate change, but a movement of where a plant or an animal would optimally grow of a kilometer a year, many species won't be able to keep up. So we're gonna lose species that don't migrate very fast. We're gonna lose species or increasingly see species at risk that are long-lived, like long-lived trees. Um, Mark Urban estimated that if we continue on a business-as-usual climate 
um, projection, that another one-sixth of species, in addition to the ones that already are at risk, another one-sixth of species would be at risk of extinction. So there would be two million reasons to care, and not just one million species to care. Now, I mentioned the threats to species that are facing species, and a lot of those threats, habitat degradation, um, invasive species, direct exploitation. Those are really proximal threats. Ultimately, as Lauren alluded to, the real issues have to do with humans and human overpopulation, human overconsumption, and human overuse. And I separate out this third category because it's possible that we could have as many people and consume as much, but if we were much better at recycling and really reducing the impact of ourselves on the natural world, it wouldn't be so bad. But humans don't tend to do that. So just really quickly, um, to illustrate the size of this problem, with overpopulation, we're now at 7.5 billion today, and projections are 10.9 billion by 2100. And none of those numbers of species at risk account for this projection for increasing human impacts. So they're a snapshot of what we know today, not a projection of what will happen with more people. As many of you in this room may have seen, the, um, the one way of measuring this, uh, our overconsumption rate, is how many worlds would it take to sustain that pop a population size that was consuming at that level? And if, we can, if the whole world consumed at the level that Canadians and um, US citizens consume, then it would take five planets to sustain that number of humans. So that's clearly unsustainable, um, and on average, we are now, ex um, it is thought that we're exceeding the world's biocapacity. So it's like having a bank account that you draw out more every month than you put in. That can be sustained if you start with a good bank account, and the world is uh, full of natural resources, but we're drawing at a faster rate, and that's what this footprint tells us. And then finally, I wanted to emphasize that it's also this overuse component, and this one, this one has to do with how we expand our use of space and don't use space very efficiently. Again, another study from out of UBC by Naveen Ramakudi and colleagues looked at where across the world, how have humans altered the world? Where have we built roads, built cities, um, built farms or created farms, or um, rangelands, villages? A whole series of different types of landscapes, and they divided the whole world into these categories. But the key that I want to emphasize here is we actually are running out of wilderness. Only about a quarter of the world's remaining um, wilderness is available. A lot of it is in Canada, and a lot of it is in Russia, but we're running out of wilderness, and that's because of our tendency to expand um, and not use space very efficiently. So that's an overall view of the biodiversity crisis globally. And I want to turn more specifically to Canada. So the um, species at risk in Canada, there are 799 as of, um, I think this is the May update, that are known, have been assessed by scientists and known to be at risk. This, uh, who are the scientists? The scientists are those on the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada, or COSIWIC. Jeanette has served on COSIWIC, and what they do is, again, assess what's the data on how these species are faring. If they're always moving up and down, that's not enough. It has to be declining in numbers over 
either three generations or 30 years, something like that. Um, and, and so they have to really be showing a trend to decline. Um, and so Kosiewicz assesses which ones are at risk and how much they're at risk. So whether or not they're um, endangered, threatened, special concern is not quite as steep a decline. Um, and the 799 excludes the extinct ones. So the species at risk that are no longer species aren't included. So 799 species at risk in Canada. Where are they? This is maybe not a surprise. They're where we are. So the density of species, the darker the blue, the more species at risk are found there or their ranges are there. And so where human impacts are the largest, either due to urbanization or ag agriculture, that's where species are most at risk. And just to put a face to some of these numbers, here are just six species that I wanted to highlight here in British Columbia. Um, a little brown bat is endangered due to white-nose syndrome, so it's declined at rates of about 94%. That's across Canada, not just in British Columbia. And you might think, white-nose syndrome, what does that have to do with humans? White-nose syndrome was, is an introduced invasive species. It's a fungus that humans introduced from Europe. So it's a, another human-caused decline. Bank swallows, they're threatened, 98% declined over 40 years. Um, which is typical of many of the grassland birds or insectivorous birds, and we actually don't uh, know why. Insects have declined, that's probably a big part of it. Uh, pesticides and other uh, chemicals can uh, concentrate up the food web, and that can be a part of why, but scientists are still trying to figure out why are they plummeting so fast. Yulikon in the Fraser River, and a very important fish to the First Nations along the Fraser River. Again, 98% decline. Over 10 years, killer whales endangered. There's um, now only 76 individuals as a southern resident population. And the thing I think that concerns um, experts a little bit more than those numbers is just that the number of babies is so low. So they're not reproducing um, now um, anywhere near at the rates that they used to reproduce. Lotus pinnatus endangered on the Gary Oak, that's in the um, southwest of BC where um, Victoria and other cities are. That's why it's endangered. And Bear's hair streak here, um, endangered in, um, due to habitat change in the Okanagan region. It's a specialist on antelope brush, and so when we convert that into vineyards and agricultural land, the antelope brush goes, and so too does the hair streak. Just one last um, species that I want to highlight, it's in the news a lot, and Cole will talk about it a bit, is caribou. Caribou are very genetically distinct. They have extremely different habitats um, and different coloration, but it's all one species. They're just subtypes, genetically distinct subtypes of reindeer or caribou. The subtypes um, of relevance to British Columbia are mainly in the boreal woodland caribou group which um, has been found by Kosiewicz to be endangered, both the Central Mountain Group and the Southern Mountain Group, mainly due to deforestation and the resulting ecological shifts. They're lichen specialists. So when the old growth forest goes, so too do they. When roads come in, wolves move faster, um, and the uh, second growth forests tend to favor deer and moose and elk. So there's a whole regime shift from lichen-covered old-growth forests that caribou love 
to secondary growth riddled with roads that help wolves and their prey, uh, moose and deer. So that's one of the things that Cole will talk about. So not only are they endangered, but we're seeing them blip out too. The two southernmost herds went extinct last year. That's the Purcell and the Selkirk. So those are now lost. The US population has also been lost. So now this whole range is moving further. And I could go into examples of birds and amphibians and plants, just this laundry list of birds that are endangered here in Canada. So what do we do? to protect these species at risk. And so now I want to shift from the plight that's, of, of, that's facing the biological world to what we're doing about it. In 2002, a uh, law was passed at the federal level. It's called the S Species at Risk Act, or SARA. So SARA um, takes these species recommendations from, we'll see, from the scientists. We, uh, and scientists are, make an assessment and say, this one's in danger, this one is threatened. And then the minister must make a decision as to whether or not to list. So when we say a species is listed, that means that the minister has said, yes, let's add it to the Sarah list. And that's an official legal designation. So once it's on the Sarah list, does that mean we work really, really hard and the species turn around immediately? The answer is no. Kosiwik actually has to reassess species every 10 years. And when they do, we have a snapshot of are these species getting better or worse? And um, in 18% of cases, they got worse. That was true for that hair streak butterfly that I just talked about. It was threatened 10 years later, it's endangered. Many are not changing. There are some seemingly good news stories, but most of the cases where they got better, it was endangered and now it's threatened, that's just because we didn't know enough before. We're finding new populations, or we didn't realize that these two populations are actually one, and so it's scientific errors. The vast majority of these improvements are not genuine improvements to the status of species. We can also look at it another way, using that LPI index, that living planet index that I mentioned, we can see how are these 64 species, that subset, that are listed under Sarah, how are they doing? And we can go to the living planet index before 2002, before Sarah, and after 2002. And the rates of decline are actually better before than after Sarah. This is not what you'd want for an effective act. Now granted, We've got more people, there's more activity, there's more industry. So that could be part of why the decline rate is now higher than it was before. But it's not a good news story. Sarah is not turning around the species that are most in need of our help. So that is a huge question, I think, for scientists and the public of this country. Why are these species continuing to decline? I think the number one answer is because of the jurisdictional morass that these species at risk face. Sarah is a federal law. It's not a provincial law. And that means that it only applies to federal crown lands. In British Columbia, that means it only applies to about 1% of lands, 1%. The vast majority, about 94% of lands in this province are BC crown lands, provincial crown lands. And there is no law in British Columbia that protects species at risk on crown land. 
the rest of the province is private land, and Sarah, neither Sarah nor the non-existing BC law protects species at risk on private land. Not unless the federal minister issues an emergency order saying, you've got to stop what you're doing. To date, only two emergency orders have been issued, only one on private land. So by and large, you can ignore that protection. It hasn't happened much. So many scientists, in 2012, many scientists came together to ask, how is Sarah doing? 10 years after we got a Species at Risk Act, and we started uh, more increasingly tracking uh, what, how Sarah was doing. And we, at that point um, in the last government, I have to say, it was very depressing. Species were being assessed by COSIWIC, but not moving through the process. They weren't being listed, even though it was legally required that the minister come to a decision, the, the minister was not coming to a decision. Again, as I mentioned, there are very few emergency orders, only two. Furthermore, the law states that you have to identify what are the habitat needs of these species and how are they faring. Well, though the, many of those critical habitat needs weren't actually making it into the documents. And furthermore, they weren't being protected. There were two other problems, of course. And one is, if you have a huge long laundry list of things that are a problem, you have to be able to prioritize this. And there wasn't really a way for, science, for anybody to say, this is the number one thing we have to do for this species. This is the number one thing we have to do for this species. And prioritize so that we can make effective, cost-effective decisions about how we are going to apply the funds, that, limited funds that we have to turn species around. That sort of analysis wasn't happening. And finally, there was very little funding directed to action. So those are all report cards, and they all are getting red lights. The good news, I think, is that actually we do care. Canadians care about species, biological diversity of this country and the globe. A survey um, of some colleagues of ours uh, found that 97% of Canadians consider the protection of Canada's endangered species to be important. And I think we all want, we all want to live in a way that our children and future generations will have the same sorts of inspirations when they go out into nature as we're able to have. I very much like the First Nations um, principle of thinking about leading our lives so that in seven generations hence the world is one that we would want to pass on to our descendants. So how I do think that uh, there has been um, improvements over the last few years on species at risk and I basically tried to say well relative to those concerns that we had four years ago where do we stand now? We still do not have a Species at Risk Act on this province, so that continues to be a problem. And do please raise this issue if you ever have the ear of an MLA or a provincial government official. The delays in listing, the current government has really pushed. There's a lot. They are actually listing, so that's step number one. And they've sped up the listing, so that's why they get a yellow. No more emergency orders. Critical habitat, now they are very... Um, they're, be, they're designating the critical habitat needs of every species with all recovery strategies that are being produced. They're still not protecting them. Well, the federal government doesn't have the ability to protect on outside of the 1% land that is its federal crown land. So it's not protecting because it doesn't have the jurisdiction to do so. Um, 
there's now a pan-Canadian approach that's attempting to prioritize the various ways that we could protect these 799 species at risk to try and make some um, sense of that morass. Well, what should we do first? What should we do second? If there's conflicting needs for different species, what do we do then? So that's what the pan-Canadian approach is attempting to do. And then little funding for directed to action. We were very pleased in the 2017 budget allocation that there was 1.3 billion um, allocated to nature. And this is for um, purchasing private land and, and protecting it um, through organizations like the Nature Trust or the Naked Nature Conservancy of Canada. It's going to conservation agreements and teams that are trying to protect species at risk, restoration activities. There was a recent um, salmon restoration fund that got a big chunk of money. So that's wonderful to see this influx of money. But I should put it into perspective. $1.3 billion over a five-year period is actually less than the cost of one movie a year for each Canadian. So that's how much we're investing in protecting species at risk. $8.6 per person per year. Um, so this is better than nothing, but I think we're doing more harm than that, more harm than $8 a year to the biological diversity of this country. I mentioned uh, protecting lands and waters, and I did want to also highlight the um, tremendous job that we've done in increasing the amount of marine protected areas. We were an embarrassment before, where we were under 1%. We signed the Convention for Biological Diversity, which promised that by 2020 we'd get to 10% marine protection and 17% protection of terrestrial lands. We won't get there on the terrestrial part. We're now um, just over 11%, but we will get there to the 10% number for marine protected areas. And so that's a really massive jump. It's a little bit easier. The feds have jurisdiction over the marine area. They don't have full jurisdiction over the terrestrial area. So that has to be done in partnership with First Nations, with territories, with provinces. So I'm going to um, wrap up my presentation just by saying we need, trans as Ipes said, we need transformative change. We need to reduce our footprint. We need to reduce the amount, the tendency that humans have to sprawl, to just expand our agriculture, expand our cities, and try and reduce the impact that we have on wildlife. We need to come up with more innovative ways to allow species to coexist with us, both in urban environments and in agricultural environments. Um, we need to protect those places in British Columbia and Canada that we know are the most critical for the most species. Um, and we, um, I really also like to highlight the, um, this infographic that came out with the 2.9 billion bird loss. There's a lot of simple things we can do. From reducing plastic use, drinking shade-grown coffee, avoiding pesticides, using native plants, keeping cats indoors, making windows safer. If you've ever seen the biodiversity building, it, you can just paint on your walls, on your windows, to reduce the number of strikes. And the biodiversity building is um, a really good example of that. And do citizen science. Be a participate in those surveys so we have a better idea of what the numbers are and how much they're declining. All right, so I want to um, turn over first to Cole, and I'll invite Cole up.
Cole is actually an alum, like many of you are. He um, did his master's in zoology from UBC and then did a PhD in environmental sciences at Berkeley. He is a conservation biologist and wildlife ecologist with broad interests in using science to inform human wildlife coexistence on an increasingly crowded planet. So he joined UBC. We're really lucky to get him in 2017 because he came with a wealth of experience. He's worked with government, he's worked with industry, and he's worked with nonprofit organizations on ecosystems around the world from Cambodia to here in Canada. So um, Cole, please come on up and let us know how you've been working on wildlife coexistence um, since you've joined UBC. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sally, and thank you all for coming. It's a real honor to, to get to share some of, uh, some of our research with you and, and to share the stage with, with Sally and Jeanette, two scientists I admire very much. Um, I'm, I'm going to just try and give you a, a, a brief window into some of the, the kinds of research we're doing in our lab to try and um, support biodiversity conservation. I'm going to talk um, more about some work we're doing here in BC. Uh, and our lab, we call ourselves the, the Wildlife Coexistence Lab. We're really trying to think about ways that, that we can share space with wild animals. And we tend to focus particularly on large terrestrial mammals, like some of these species uh, that have been captured here in some of our wildlife cameras. Uh, many of these are threatened species or species considered to be of special concern provincially as well as federally. So uh, Sally mentioned woodland caribou. Um, also grizzly bears are, are of special concern as are mountain goats here in BC. Um, and then some of them are more common, but like this, this black bear here, they have a tendency to, to run into conflict with people. And you know, we tend to, to think large mammals do present these challenges because of their large area requirements and their potential for conflict, whether that's direct conflict over stealing garbage or indirect conflict over these large habitat areas we need to protect for these species. And BC has a special role for many of these large mammals. It has the most, the greatest number of large mammal species in, in North America. 70% um, of Canada's mammals uh, across the country uh, occur here in BC. And we have 25% uh, of the world's grizzly bears in BC and 60% of the world's mountain goats. So we have a special responsibility to try and protect some of these species. And in many ways, BC is, is kind of a frontier for these species because it represents sort of the limit of many of their historical range contractions. So many of these species have been lost from much of the, of the lower 48 United States, including, as, as Sally mentioned, caribou most recently being extirpated from the US. Um, and, and BC is also a bit of a frontier in terms of, of the, the pace of land use change. We've had a lot of recent land use change in the province uh, due to industrial development and other activities. You, you can hopefully see some of that in this map from a recent paper by colleagues at the University of Victoria where they, um, they've characterized a lot of the, the change in the landscape due to our development activities. So in orange, they're agricultural areas, uh, forestry in, in green and oil and gas, particularly up in the northeast in, in blue. So we're having a lot of these changes on the landscape and they've correlated these changes with retractions, continued retractions in the ranges of many of these species. <clears throat> and when we consider these, these types of economic activities on our land base and when we do our land use planning, we, we don't seem to have a problem valuing the resources that we're exploiting but what we don't do a good job, I don't think, is, is valuing the wildlife and their habitats, despite the irony of, of us putting them on our money. Um, hopefully everyone knows this is a caribou on our quarter, so we, we carry around a picture of caribou in our pocket, and yet when it comes to, 
to these trade-offs around land use planning, we tend to not really put much value into the habitat for these species. And even where we do value species, for instance, in the hunting of these, these big game animals, as they're often called, BC tends to be lagging behind right now. So this is an infographic put out by the BC Wildlife Federation. And, and you don't need to, I'll, I'll give you the take home message, which is that they've ranked uh, Western states and provinces according to the amount of money they're putting into managing these wildlife populations that are hunted. And at the top is, is Oregon with an annual budget of about 175 million. And at the bottom down here is British Columbia with only 34 million. So whether we look at total spending or per capita spending or spending per unit area, um, BC is spending less than many other jurisdictions on, on effectively managing these populations, despite the fact that we have by far the most species and subspecies of large mammals that are being hunted. So, so we're not really investing enough in, in the sustainability of these populations. And this has certainly not gone unnoticed by the provincial government. They're in fact in the middle of a, of a, of a review and rethinking of their approach and their policies for wildlife management. Um, I encourage you, if you're interested in the topic, to check out their public engagement. They're about to roll out some ideas of how they could, they could improve management. And certainly one of the things they're thinking about is how to get more funding, how to not just rely on hunter licenses to fund conservation of these, uh, of these types of species and their important habitats, which also are important habitats for many other species that aren't as high profile. And another, there are many issues they're trying to address in this review of policy, but another big issue they're trying to address is how do we get better data? How do we get better information on our wildlife populations so we can understand not only their status better, but also how they're responding to our conservation actions, to, to how we're trying to, to reverse this biodiversity crisis? Because really, in many cases, we have very poor data, particularly in terms of how animals are responding or how their populations are responding to our actions. So one of the things that our lab is excited about is, is a tool that we call wildlife camera trapping or remote cameras. Um, and this is a tool that we think is, has great potential to get lots of information on different wildlife species. I'm showing a time-lapse video from a year of our sampling up in a boreal forest site up in northern Alberta where we've been using these cameras where you, you attach them to a tree, you can leave them be, you don't have to pay a, a student to sit there the whole time or feed them. Um, and and there, we take a daily time-lapse photo, because as you can see here, they're triggered when animals move past them, when warm-bodied warm animals go past. So we get this great record of the use of a particular site by a range of different species. Hopefully you're getting a glimpse of some of the different ones we're catching. And we also get more than just the animals. We get this background on the environmental change, how the plants are growing, how much snow there is, some of these factors that we know are changing under a changing climate. And so this is just one particular camera, but with the in improvements in technology of these camera traps, there are thousands of cameras being put out around the province and, and hundreds of thousands around the world now because it's become a very important tool for, for wildlife management. And, and so one of the things we're excited about is really bringing together a lot of these different camera projects to try and improve our knowledge and our understanding of how wildlife are changing on our landscapes. And so we, we've just started this what we're calling WildCam, which is Wildlife Cameras for Adaptive Management, where we're trying to, to bring together uh, practitioners, researchers, industry and government biologists, uh, citizen scientists who are using this tool so that instead of having small-scale deployments of these cameras, we can collectively learn from the, the whole group of cameras going across the landscape. So this is just a little snapshot from a website that we've just, uh, we're just rolling out. It's not even really rolled out yet, but. 
sneak preview. Um, and we've got over 60 projects here in BC and a few in Alberta that, that are contributing to this, this network. This is just a couple of the, the projects up there now. But we think having a standardized tool that we can, we can uh, synthesize across large scales is going to be really informative for trying to understand the conservation status of these species. I'll just give you a very quick glimpse into, into some of uh, what, we're, what we're thinking about with this camera network. And does anybody recognize this particular animal? Spotted skunk, thank you, yeah. So, so the spotted skunk is, is, is much rarer than the, the, the more common striped skunk, which occurs throughout the province. The spotted skunk, the only place it occurs in Canada is here in southwestern BC, the lower mainland Fraser Valley. But we have very little information on this animal. So the official status in BC is unknown. Um, There's just a few records here and there. So, so we don't, we're not even able to say if it's a, a threatened or endangered species. We know it's rare, we just don't have information. And these camera trap studies are getting pictures like this of spotted skunk, but because it's often not the focus of a project, it just sits on someone's computer. So we're trying to harness this kind of information, this verifiable, archivable evidence that we can really use to better understand the status of these data-poor species. But we're also trying to ask specific questions about responses to, to our management actions. I think I forgot to mention when I had the BC map up there that we do have quite an impressive protected area system. We have about 15% of our land cover in parks. And parks are obviously critical protections of habitat for these wide-ranging species, um, like grizzly bears and wolverines here that we've, we've captured in some of our cameras. Um, but the other thing about parks is they're increasingly used for human recreational activities. They kind of have this dual mandate of nature-based tourism or recreation as well as wildlife conservation. And our parks here in BC have really not had the funding to understand if they're doing a good job of protecting wildlife. They are setting aside habitat. But with the cameras, we also get a wealth of information on how people are using these landscapes as well. And certainly there's a lot of increasing recreational pressures on our parks. This is from one of the parks where we're working in South Chilcotin Mountains, Provincial Park specifically. So we've now put these camera arrays out in several different uh, parks and we're working with BC Parks to try and develop this as a monitoring tool. And we're asking the question about how much this kind of recreational pressure affects wildlife species. And I'm not gonna get into details. We have just some of this work is just, just we're in the preliminary stages of analyzing it. But we have one analysis done for South Chilcotin Mountains Park and we actually looked across 13 wildlife species. And all 13 of them were showing some avoidance of recreational activities, particularly the faster moving activities as you might expect like mountain biking or uh, motorized vehicle use uh, as, as compared to less responses to things like hiking or horseback riding. So this is not to say that parks are not effective, but it's sort of a call to attention that park managers really need to be thinking about how our increasing pressures as our population continues to grow are affecting these really important protected habitats for wildlife. And then I just wanted to, to switch back to um, working landscapes. So obviously we can't just protect wildlife in the 15% of lands we have protected. We need to think about managing wildlife sustainably in the 85% that are our working landscapes. And I wanted to bring this back to the caribou conundrum, as we call it, uh, this challenge with managing caribou. And one of the big problems with, with one of the driving reasons, as Sally mentioned, that caribou are declining, is that we've drastically changed their habitats through our alteration of the forest. So when we, when we log the forest or when we develop it for oil and gas exploration or, or mines, uh, we're taking away this mature forest that caribou depend on and replacing it often with early successional forests 
that attract moose and, and deer and other um, apparent competitors of caribou increase their populations and correspondingly increase the populations of wolves. Wolves are also able to use these landscapes much more effectively. So we have these long linear corridors or linear features as we call them like seismic lines which really crisscross much of the, the boreal forest and, and we have roads and other things crisscrossing much of our forests out west here. And wolves use these as kind of uh, predator superhighways where they can get access into caribou habitat and increase their predation of caribou. So we hear a lot in the news about, about sort of attempts to try and uh, protect caribou by managing the wolf problem, by killing wolves, by maybe trying to manage some of the prey species, by penning caribou uh, in these fenced areas to protect them from predation. But we hear less about, about habitat protection. And really in many areas it's really about habitat recovery. And so that's the question I have up here is can we restore caribou habitat? Because across many parts of particularly the boreal forests um, up in northern Alberta's oil sands, there's a lot of money being invested right now in trying to restore these, these seismic lines, take away these, these predator super high, highways by um, bulldozing them up here, creating these movement barriers and blockages and also replanting seedlings to try and regrow the forest, which in these low productivity environments have been really stagnant and not regrowing. So this is, this is applauded as a good effort. We're trying to recover the, the caribou habitat. But one problem with a lot of this investment is no one has been asking the caribou if they, if they think it's a good idea. And so with, these, with the wildlife cameras, we've been trying to set up these studies where we're comparing some of these restored areas with unrestored areas, using the cameras to look at how wildlife are using these areas. And, and so this is just a snapshot of what we've, what we've found from an area in northern Alberta, up in the oil sands where we've been doing this for a few years. And this is relatively short term after the restoration efforts. But so far, we're not, what we're seeing is not super promising in the sense that we're not seeing any re reduction in use by these caribou predators of these lines. So very limited effect on wolves, no, no discernible effect on bears. We are seeing less use by, by white-tailed deer, not by moose, but white-tailed deer are a dominant competitor in the system for caribou. So they seem to be using these restored lines a bit less, um, but caribou are not using them more. So, so far in the early years after restoration, we're not seeing sort of a resetting or rebalancing of this predator-prey system that would help caribou. So I think this is early. I mean, vegetation re restoration obviously takes a long time, but with caribou, they don't have a long time. And so this is kind of a trade-off where if, if we don't want to be engaging in long-term predator control or other kinds of means, we need to be making sure that these types of habitat protection and restoration efforts are actually being effective on the time scale that's important to, to protect the species. And so by getting these cameras out there and, and really monitoring responses to some of these efforts, we think, it's, uh, we think it's a really important way to try and feed that information back into management, back into informing conservation decisions. So, so I hope I've given you a little glimpse of how we're, we're trying to address some of these things and I wanna, um, so we have time for questions, I wanna make sure I pass on here to Jeanette. And just up, invite up to the stage Jeanette Whitten, my colleague at the Biodiversity Research Center and a professor um, in the Department of Botany. She's an evolutionary biologist. As I mentioned, she served on COSIWIC for um, many years. She also has run the UBC Herbarium for many years. It's the largest herbarium in Western Canada. It's a part of the Beattie Biodiversity Museum, and it's the sixth largest herbarium in Canada. 
Uh, her research focuses on the conditions that allow new species of plants to arise, spread, and share the land with their close relatives. And both from her research, as well as her roles at the herbarium in Kosiwik, she is an expert on species at risk declines and the factors that limit their recovery. Thank you, Jeanette. Uh, so I just want to tell you a little story. Uh, as Sally mentioned, I'm a plant evolutionary biologist, and uh, this is my happy place, is to be out uh, in the field uh, very early in the spring studying these Easter daisies. They're called Easter daisies because they flower at Easter, uh, and also they come back from the dead, but that's another story uh, for another time. Um, what I'm showing you here is uh, just a, a, a panorama of, uh, of the distribution of this species, and I wanted to point out um, that what we're interested in here is the very early stages of establishment for a new species. And you might think, well, that doesn't really seem to have a whole lot to do with conservation biology because conservation biology is really about the other end of the life of a species, the part when it's in decline. But if you think about it a little bit, the challenges are kind of the same. If you're new, you're rare. And so those challenges of establishing are not unlike the challenges of recovering from having been brought to rarity. At least that's the story I tell myself. Now the dots that you see on the map, where a lot of the time what people ask us is, why do you study this species? And we, we study this species. I came across this species in the literature uh, from a PhD thesis that was published in 1957 by John Beeman. And he collected specimens along the way, and this is where the tie-in to the museums and the herbarium comes. And when I started to work on the species, I had the benefit of a map that he had produced in his, in his work uh, that showed us where he had found this species and characterized it a little bit for us. And so that's the first thing that you do when you're starting to work on a system. You try to figure out where it lives, and you go out and you use that information to go find your own populations to work on. And you know, it's really quite remarkable. We have uh, now millions of specimen records that have been digitized. So I had to go to the book and read the fine print and then go look at the specimens. But now, if you wanted to do this kind of work, you would go to a site like this one, the Consortium of Pacific Northwest Herbaria has information. And this is the information that we have for um, a species of paintbrush. It's called cliff paintbrush. And the map shows you where we have records of the species, and you can click on each of those dots and bring up information, and sometimes even a picture of the specimen, which is what you have, that tiny little thumbprint up there in the, in the top right. You're probably guessing that this isn't a random species. This is actually a species at risk. And uh, this is its worldwide distribution here, as far as we know, uh, shown on the map. So this cliff paintbrush is listed as threatened under SARA, under the Species at Risk Act, the Federal Species at Risk Act. Uh, it was listed in 2006 based on an assessment done by scientists before I sat on the committee back in 2005. And so I've shown you a map and we, we understand, I've just told you that we, we can gather all of this information really sitting at our desks. And so you might get the impression that we know a whole lot about the distribution uh, and um, the biology of species like this, given that they're at risk. And we do know some things. So this is um, a, a different uh, source of information about the species. This is from the BC Conservation Data Center. And again, you can click on those occurrences and find out details about uh, what we know. You know, we actually don't know that much. So um, I, I teach a science communication class, and I've told all my students, don't put tables into presentations. and then. 
as I sat there today and put this into the presentation, I thought, it's okay, I know what I'm doing, I'm a professional. Um, <laughs> these are the 16 places in British Columbia where we know that this species has occurred. The two at the top are historical. We don't think they're there anymore. We've gone back and we can't find the plants there. Uh, the rest of these, what I have there is the year that they were last observed. And what you'll see is that the most recent time that we know that someone has gone out and observed this species in the wild is 2010. And for a lot of these populations, the last time we visited them, that a scientist visited them and made some attempt to even count them, which is pretty basic information, they don't run away. We don't need camera traps. We can just go and count them one time. Um, is usually before they were last assessed. So sometime in the 90s is quite common. And look at the numbers. The numbers are crazy. The numbers are not numbers. They're often just descriptions that say few plants or maybe a plant per meter squared, but over how many meters squared? And um, so we estimate from this that there are about 350 of these uh, individuals of this species in British Columbia, which is a good chunk of the worldwide distribution. And that's really the essence of what we know. We actually didn't list this because it was declining. We listed it because when the numbers are that low, then there are just dangers of being in small populations that, that arise. There's an inherent risk in not having a whole lot of individuals because if you fail to reproduce for a year or two, you, your whole population could crash. And if these populations are blinking out while we're not watching, then the whole species could disappear from this part of the range. Uh, and we don't know what's happening out there. So following listing, a recovery strategy is required for these species, and one of those was produced in 2017 by the federal government. So it took them 11 years to produce the recovery strategy, just mentioning that. Um, and this is the objective that's stated in the recovery in the, in the document. These objectives are legally binding. There's a section that you're required to have in each recovery strategy, and it's this. Uh, and this is what it says. It says, to maintain the abundance of cliff paintbrush at all known locations throughout its range in Canada, which includes any new populations that are identified. What does it mean to maintain the abundance of a species that we don't actually know the abundance of? Uh, and so this is what is enforceable um, by law. So uh, a, a proponent could, in theory, uh, take the government to task for not achieving this objective, but I don't know what the evidence would be. It would be very tricky to do that. We know a lot, we know a fair amount. Once we, when we put all the data together, it looks like we know a lot. So this is um, a different version of a, a slide that Sally showed that uh, Jenny McCune and, and our collaborators uh, uh, did based on a study of these recovery strategies. And we identified in here the most common threats. And you can see that for plants, highlighted in that line in blue, the most common threats are pretty much the same as the most common threats across the board because there are so many plants that are listed. Uh, and there are things like, as Sally mentioned, like human disturbance and invasive species and residential and commercial development. So it's really us. Um, but I want to point out here that, as Sally also mentioned, climate change way down here is not frequently mentioned, not yet in this compilation. We don't have a lot of species for which we have direct evidence of an impact of climate change. Um, yeah, I suppose I made that slide. Um, 
This is from the, a, a citation, a little quote taken out of the report that resulted in the listing of this species, where climate change isn't listed as a threat. But this is in here nonetheless, and it says habitat trends are probably stable at this time. However, if climate change predictions of higher global temperatures develop, um, it is possible the subalpine alpine habitats could be adversely affected. It is not possible at this time to predict what specific changes to the habitat would occur. So I want you to put this together with the fact that we're not watching. We're not going back to these species and we don't really know what's happening. And we don't really know where we started from. And so despite the fact that we're doing a lot of work to collect the species that are at risk, to document that they're at risk, there's still for many, many, many species a whole lot of data gaps, a whole lot of missing information that would help us to understand what it is that needs to be done next. And so some of the things we need to do are fairly simple, like establish counts, and then we have to figure out what number we're actually aiming for and go from there. Um, the last slide that I have is just something that's a, the second to last slide that I have is just a, a curiosity. Um, can anyone guess where that picture on the left is taken? It's in Vancouver. Uh, it's Carisdale. Yeah, it's just the way you remember it. Um, this is Carisdale, sometime between 1911 and 1913. This image was taken by uh, John Davidson, who was actually the founder of the herbarium and the founder of the Botanic Garden, and a, the first, or an early, not the first, but an early provincial botanist. And one of the things that he did was, ahead of the crews that were clearing the land, he was collecting plants and making specimens that we now house in the herbarium. They're some of our oldest and most precious specimens. And he was doing this so that we could know what had been here and figure out whether or not the things that grew up in these neighborhoods afterwards were things that should be here or things that were coming in due to the disturbance. Uh, the picture on the right happens to be the school up the street from me, where I live, um, just off of Main Street, and you can kind of see that the stumps are still there and behind. I guarantee you that they're not still there. So John Davidson uh, wrote that he really wanted to document the flora of the city before it was lost, essentially as it was going away. And I guess the question that I would pose to you is, is that what we want to do now? Do we just, do we want to watch and document as things are going away? Or do we want to try to engage a little bit more in uh, compelling uh, those who can make these decisions to act differently? So our last slide is the quiz, is to check and see whether or not you've been taking notes and doing your homework. So uh, of course, the answers are here. So you can, you, can, you can score yourselves on this quiz. On what percent of land in BC are endangered species legally protected? It's that 1% that is federal crown land. What law, if any, protects species at risk on federal crown land? It's the Species at Risk Act, the federal act. What law, if any, protects species at risk on BC crown land? None. There is none. And what law, if any, protects species at risk on private land? None. There is none.